Welcome to Dispatches, a short-form podcast from the old front line, and me, military historian Paul Reed. In these shorter podcasts, we'll tell some of the quieter, smaller stories of the Great War. We'll share books, look at original documents, and take dispatches on the road and visit locations across that landscape of the Great War. Pilgrimages have long been part of the human experience, long before the Great War. Pilgrimages were often prompted by religious belief, but not always. If you travel across Britain and mainland Europe, you'll discover many pilgrimage routes, some dating back millennia. And when it came to the end of the Great War in 1918, and the parents and the men and the women who had lived through that conflict looked back on what had happened over those momentous four years, there was a feeling that the loss, the sacrifice within Britain and its empire had to stand for something, had to mean something. And the dead of Britain and that empire took on a kind of semi-religious tone and feeling to it. Luchin's on what was the temporary cenotaph and eventually the permanent one in Whitehall in London, called them the glorious dead. And there was a desire for them to be remembered, which we saw in many acts in that period in the 1920s, some of which we've covered on this podcast before. The burial of the unknown warrior is a good example of that in Westminster Abbey. And while some of those early pilgrimages in the immediate years following the end of hostilities on the battlefields of the Great War, related to visiting war graves, to visiting the dead, there were also pilgrimages about those who had survived and led by those who had survived the trenches of the Western Front. So where did those pilgrimages begin? In some respects, they began even before the army that had fought that war was demobilised. There were units based across northern France and parts of Belgium when the war ended. When the fighting ceased at Mons, that last great battlefield of the British Army, where troops had gone into action on the 11th of November 1918, when the fighting ended there, some men moved across different parts of Belgium and established themselves within towns. Some would go on to become part of the occupation force in Germany, the first British army of the Rhine. And those units that were based in France and Belgium often sent groups of men or groups of men got together to go out on their own battlefield pilgrimages to see where their unit had fought. And I've seen this in my own experience of collecting photo albums of the Great War. I have several that were made by men who were in units that then went out and visited the battlefields. There's one I've got, for example, of an officer that ran a training centre behind the lines on the Western Front. And when the war was over, he possibly had not actually got to the very front line itself, but he'd sent many men through his training establishment to go up the line and do their bit. And he went out and visited the battlefields around Ypres and took a lot of photographs there. But of course, those units didn't stay 
very cohesive for very long. The army was in the process of demobilising those men and gradually those battalions shrank and men went home and became civilians once more. And in kind of penny packets of those civilians in the immediate years following the end of the Great War, following their discharge from the army, men did go across and visit the battlefields and then groups began to do it. One of the earliest examples I've got of this that's reported in a newspaper comes from June 1920. And in that report, which was sent to the Times, the person who wrote it said, We have just completed a 350 miles pilgrimage in the battlefields of Belgium and France in search of the graves of eight boys. Our task was to find the graves in the following areas, Ypres, Armentières, Arras, Albert and Amiens, to place a wreath from the church on each grave. When I mention the fact that the 350 miles are starred with cemeteries and that the abiding memory of the wayside is that of little white crosses lifting their heads above the poppies, it will be realised what a difficult task has been accomplished and a word or two of comfort for friends in England, anxious about the graves of their dear ones, will perhaps not be out of place. Let me say then that the graves in Belgium and France are in excellent preservation. And it was reports like that that kind of acted as a a domino effect. People read it in the newspaper, and books began to be published describing how you made those trips to the battlefields, where you stayed, what you could see, who were your local guides. And organisations grew up, like the EAP League, which was a group of ex-servicemen got together to help enable people to visit the battlefields of the Channel ports around Ypres and then further into the old Western Front, into that old front line. But at that stage, it was individuals perhaps doing it. And then gradually, during this period of the early 1920s, as the men came home from demobilisation, began to be civilians, to live as civilians once more, they missed the comradeship of the trenches, of their military experience and all that that meant to them. And at that period is when you begin to see the foundation of old comrade associations, where men from particular divisions are forming old comrades units. We've mentioned before how there was a connection between a strong old comrades association for a division, a publication of a divisional history, and then the placement on the battlefields, possibly involving a pilgrimage, of a divisional memorial. And we've discussed many of those in many episodes of this podcast. But even individual battalions or even artillery and engineer units often had their own old comrades association, particularly if they were localised, recruited within Kitchener's army, or were pre-war territorial ones. So in Sheffield, there was a strong contingent of men who'd served in the West Riding Field Ambulance, for example, and they had a regular meet-up in the city of Sheffield and placed a memorial in one of the parks there. But again, I've seen the beginning of battalion unit-led pilgrimages by collecting photo albums, and I have one of the men of the 11th Suffolk Regiment. They were the Cambridgeshire Battalion, who had gone into action on the first day of the Somme at La Boiselle and suffered terrible casualties advancing down Sausage Valley towards Contour Maison, and went on to fight, indeed, in many other 
battles besides. But this photograph album covers two pilgrimages they made, one in the 1920s and then another one for the 20th anniversary of the Somme on the 1st of July 1936. And the men wore a little cardboard badge on their blazers with the insignia of the 34th Division that their battalion was a part of, which was the checkerboard, and then details of their unit. And they grouped together and they visited the places where they had fought and assembled at the 34th Division Memorial at La Boiselle. And it's that photograph of those veterans that I've used as the main image for this episode of Dispatches. So we're seeing a kind of development of these pilgrimages from individuals going across, like that group that went to lay wreaths on graves, perhaps families making individual pilgrimages to visit a son, a brother, a father, a husband, and then groups of people from particular units or with a some kind of connection that brought them together for a collective war experience. They then begin to make the pilgrimages and gradually the size of these groups gets bigger. And as the 20s move towards the 30s, big pilgrimages begin. The Evening Dispatch of April 1926 had a headline that read 30,000 tour battlefields. Now this was not a British pilgrimage. Incredibly, this was a planned American one. Ex-soldiers from America were heading over to the battlefields on a war graves pilgrimage, which it was said would cost over three million pounds, which is a staggering amount of money in the 1920s, and I dread to think what that would be the equivalent of today. The report goes on to say that money was being raised by the American Legion for the movement of these men so they could visit some of the famous American battlefields like the Argonne, that 27 liners would be needed to take them across the Atlantic to dock in some of the ports that had been used by American troops in the Great War and then proceed out onto those battlefields. And that considering that perhaps as many as 30,000 veterans would attend this pilgrimage, then the city of Paris would have to be the base for it. Now, I've no record of this pilgrimage on this kind of scale by veterans of the American Expeditionary Force ever taking place. I suspect events that were approaching with the crash of stock markets and the general economic situation in Europe in the late 1920s probably brought this idea to an end. But I'd be fascinated to hear from our American listeners whether anything of any kind of scale was ever then later attempted from America. But from Britain, as those late 20s approached, several large pilgrimages to the battlefields took place. The Menin Gate was unveiled in July 1927, when Lord Plumer was there and stood to a crowd of several thousand people who'd come to remember some of those nearly 55,000 names on the Menin Gate. This was the beginning of the construction of these big memorials to the missing that helped in what we would now call closure to help families see a name carved in stone and perhaps finally accept that that soldier was never coming home. But it then took on an even bigger aspect when the British Legion, what was then a fledgling organisation that was growing in stature and size and importance, organised and led the Great Pilgrimage 
of 1928 when thousands of ex-servicemen travelled across to the battlefields. Now, Terry Wenham, who's a great friend of this podcast, who's been on here and has his own fantastic podcast, Tales of the Battlefields, is going to be doing an episode on that great pilgrimage fairly soon, so keep an eye out for that. And both he and I were very privileged to be involved in the 90th anniversary of that with what was called GP90, which is when we took 2,500 modern members of the British Legion back over those same battlefields to kind of reconstruct that pilgrimage in a way when they paraded at the Menin Gates with their standards. So that was a one of the biggest single British pilgrimages of that period. And then as the 30s approached, there was a kind of rekindling of interest again. A lot of war books had been published in the 20s, and you kind of feel a decade after the conflict, perhaps some people were becoming war-weary with all these books and talk of the First World War, the Great War, of course, as they called it then. But the 30s, there was this, I think, kind of a change when people became interested again. Popular magazines like 20 Years After and The Great War I Was There were published. And then big memorials were finally finished and unveiled. The Thiepval Memorial and the Arras Memorial were unveiled over the same period in 1932. And it's said that at Thiepval, over 10,000 people attended the unveiling of the memorial there, when the Prince of Wales, who would soon become king, stood by the veterans and the gardeners, and the French president attended that alongside members of the French army. It was a massive event and broadcast on the radio as well. And that invention of radio with sound enabled people to be connected to these events even if they couldn't personally attend. The most significant 1930s event in some respects, of course, and something that we have covered when we've looked at the Vimy Memorial on this podcast before, is the Vimy Pilgrimage of 1936, when over 10,000 Canadians travelled to those battlefields, a massive undertaking, and for them, a personal, perhaps once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to come and see where they had fought or for families to visit graves. There were these big circuits that groups of Canadians went on to try and take in as many of the cemeteries as possible so that family members could visit a particular grave. It's an amazing undertaking, and there have been books written both at the time. There's a book about the Great Pilgrimage, the British Legion one in 1928, and there were books about Vimy, including the personal little diary that each member of the Vimy party were given, where there was details about what the Canadians had done in the Great War, a map of the Vimy battlefields, and then a kind of a diary that you could fill in. I have one of these that was carried to Vimy by a veteran of the Canadian Scottish, who was then commissioned in the Indian Army. But he returned to Canada after the war and travelled on that pilgrimage in 1936. But of course, we can now look back and see that the clock was ticking then. 1936 was the year of the Berlin Olympics. Hitler had been in power for three years. Within two years, Britain felt itself on the verge of war with the invasion of Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland, and it was clear that another conflict was coming. But the pilgrimages continue. The Eep League magazine, the Eep Times, reported quite a few unit pilgrimages from the mid to late 30s onwards. And looking at the newspapers of 1939, there were pilgrimages going on right up to the summer of that year, literally only weeks before 
the invasion of Poland and the beginning of another world war. And once that began, movements to the battlefields were restricted and only troops who were based in France or the war graves workers who were maintaining the cemeteries and memorials had access to the battlefields. Those visits by individuals were pretty much over for quite a few years to come. Interestingly, there was no Australian or New Zealand pilgrimages of any size to the battlefields in the 1920s or 30s. There wasn't even a big Australian pilgrimage to Gallipoli. They had several attempts at this, but nothing ever was formalised and nothing took place. Australian veterans groups, perhaps from some individual units, went across, but nothing on the scale of British veterans. They were on the other side of the world, those Anzacs who had fought on the Western Front. So their chances perhaps of coming across, particularly in the constraints of finance and the economy in that interwar period, really ruled that out and, and probably robbed many veterans of the chance of the same kind of closure that families had when they visited graves or saw names on memorials. For veterans, it would have been very important and a way for them to come to terms with all that they'd seen, all that they'd experienced. And that comes across in many of the accounts that you read of men who did make those kind of pilgrimages in the 1920s and 30s, which brings me on to a new book on this subject. Mike Hill, who is a podcast listener and wrote an excellent book on the Christmas truce, which I recommended in a previous podcast, contacted me some time ago to tell me that he was working on a book about the pilgrimages in the interwar period, and the book has just come out, published by Font Hill. I'll put details of it onto the podcast website with a link to their website so you can order a copy. It's a fantastic book that looks at the years between the end of the war and the beginning of the next conflict, so nearly two decades' worth of battlefield pilgrimages, and takes accounts, both unpublished and published, and puts them into the book to give us a perspective from the eyes of those and the words of those who travelled to those battlefields, who sought out that old front line in that interwar period. And these accounts that are in this new book do give us those insights into what inspired people to make these pilgrimages. One anonymous account said, There is the ever-present challenge of the dead to the living. See to it, they have not died in vain. To see such places should fill each one with fresh resolve to preserve peace, to assist the maimed, who unlike those who passed out the Menin Gate and returned not, came back broken and shattered. See that they did not die in vain. Keep faith with them. And the Reverend Gibson, who was a chaplain to the 7th DLI, Durham Light Infantry, said, Little did I imagine 19 or 20 years ago that I should one day be strolling across the shell-swept ridges of the Somme with perfect freedom of movement, or be worshipping in a beautiful church on a delightful summer morning in what was then a battered and shattered Ypres. I have listened to people who, confessing their inability to understand why anyone should ever wish to return to those scenes of other days with their harrowing memories of destruction and mud and death, Yet one fancies that of the many who became familiar with those stricken areas between the years 1914-1918, very few have not felt a longing to see them in their more peaceful and normal setting. 
We expected many changes and found them. Towns and villages that once seemed destroyed beyond all recognition and renewal have been beautifully reconstructed, and miles of devastated territory that could not so much boast a blade of grass have been transformed into fertile and smiling landscape. Peasants are toiling, cattle grazing, and little children are playing in fields where men had a rendezvous with death. And as you come to the section of the book that covers those final visits in 1939, just before the Second World War, you get men beginning to muse on the current political situation and wonder if it will all happen again. I often wondered as I tramped over the old familiar ground if the wounds of 1914-18 healed in some places, healing slowly in others, will all be reopened. I wondered if the names Beaumont, Hamel, Arras, Albert, Combray, Ypres, Saint-Quentin, Le Cateau, Villers-Bretonneux will again be press headlines. How much of the scrap metal of the battlefields will again find its way back to those fields via the munition factory and gun? And will those poppies at High Wood be redipped? It's a fantastic book, and again one of these books that genuinely brings, I think, new knowledge and understanding to the Great War, and it's highly recommended. And it's made me kind of dipping in and out of the accounts that are there, many of them really powerful and quite moving. Think about what these pilgrimages meant to people. It was a number of things. There was a degree of what we would now call closure, where men and women who had served, nurses went back as well, people had served behind the lines, not just those who'd been in the trenches, and who dealt with the casualties of war like nurses had done, but men and women went back to try and deal with their experiences, to understand their experiences, and families went to find a wooden cross and eventually a white stone, the soldiers' cemeteries, the silent cities, as Kipling called them, across those great battlefields. For the families, it was more about remembrance, the true essence, perhaps, of pilgrimage. But the veterans... It was more about those criss-cross paths of the Great War, making sense of the things that they'd seen, of the men that they'd known, and the lives that they'd lived once, which were now shadows along that old front line. You've been listening to Dispatches, part of the Old Front Line podcast with me, military historian Paul Reed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please think about leaving a review on your favourite podcast platform, giving us a rating, and leaving a comment on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter, and if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash old front line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.